Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Abby. Hey, Larry. What's going on these days? Well, I feel like the last few times we've been getting whiplash from some hope on a a climate bill to crushing those dreams to hope. And I think we're back. We were mansioned. Yeah, right. We're (laughs) mansioned. Now we can be cautiously optimistic. Yeah. This has the potential to be huge. It includes $369 billion for clean energy investments. And just for comparison, the the ARA stimulus of the Obama years was $90 billion. And so that had a huge impact on clean energy, energy efficiency, uh, and really gave a, a boost to some of those renewable energy markets. And so I think that the $369 billion and the private capital that will be leveraged through that is is huge. Yeah. At the highest level, I mean, there's, there's so much great stuff in this. It's obviously not everything, but high level is that it puts us in the game, puts us within shouting distance of hitting the goals that we need to. That's really encouraging. Yeah, it is. It's important for cities to continue to pay attention to what funding might become available, whether it's there's still the infrastructure funding that that is out there. And I think grants are really starting to open up now and we're starting to understand a bit more about um, what will be available to cities through that. And then with this, what is it, the Inflation Reduction Act, should this make it through, there's also going to be a ton more opportunities. It's going to have incentives for electrifying heating systems. It's going to have incentives for electric vehicles. All sorts of things that'll that'll hit home, that'll be there for businesses, that local governments can help everyday residents, business community take advantage of, of some of those things and, and implement their own programs. Yeah, it's great. And also reading more about it, learning that there's an environmental justice angle to this too. A $60 billion EJ investment, which apparently will be the largest of such type in, in our history. Yeah, I, I think that that's critical. And it underscores the Biden administration's commitment to Justice 40 and 40% of benefits going to environmental justice communities. And so if we can keep on putting money into rectifying current and past harms and ensuring that people aren't left behind as this major investment in clean energy happens, people can't be left behind who have been left behind historically, who have bared the burden of pollution. Folks who are in fossil fuel jobs need a transition out and into other cleaner opportunities as well. And I think you mentioned this, but there's a good amount of solar uh, stuff in here too, isn't there? Yeah. And a lot of communities have seen growth in solar. We spoke with the Winnesheek Energy District a, a couple episodes back and 
we've seen a solar boom in the last decade, and we're going to continue to see that grow. And uh, some cities are better prepared than other cities to handle it. Fortunately, there is a program that's available for cities that can help them prepare for solar coming into their community and making it easier and, and tailored to their community desires. And that's the Solar Smart program through IREC, which is the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. That's right. And we're talking to Teresa Perry there, the program director. And I love Soul Smart. St. Louis Park loves Soul Smart. We're a gold member, but you get to learn what that is by listening. Let's do it. Let's do it. Today, we are speaking with Teresa Perry, director of the Soul Smart program at IREC. Let's start with introductions. Teresa, can you introduce yourself? My name is Teresa Perry, and I am with the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. I've been here now for about three years with the SoulSmart program, really excited about how we continue to grow and the new things that are happening with the program. Really excited about the number of communities that continue to, to work with us to enable better solar market development in their local regions. So you said what IREC stands for, but can you tell more about what is IREC? What does it do? What's its purpose? IREC is a great organization. They've been around for nearly 40 years. They look at regulatory, they look at uh, workforce development. Um, we are an independent organization and we were at one point the Solar Foundation. And last year we merged the two organizations. The Solar Foundation had been around for similar amounts of time. IREC had a broader view of not just solar energy, but clean energy. We brought the organizations together. It was really, to me, a perfect marriage. We look at local governments, we look at workforce, we look at regulatory, and just working to make clean energy a reality in this country. We're going to be talking about SoulSmart, but what is it? What is SoulSmart? SoulSmart is a designation program. It's a program that local governments can participate in to pick up and adopt best practices to make their solar markets develop and to bring solar to their community. So we do a basic bronze, silver, gold. We have criteria or best practices that we have been outlining for some time now. We do refine them, move them forward and make them as clear as possible. Communities then can get that free technical assistance to get the help they need to make sure they are doing as much as they can to get solar to their communities. So SMART has been around for a while and it was established to help communities remove some of the local barriers to uh, higher rates of, of adoption for solar, what are some of those barriers? You know, they are some sometimes just very basic, like, do you have a permit for solar? There are some communities that don't have a special permit for that. There are other communities that might have something very specific about not having solar on their rooftops, just because it's aesthetically not appealing. So there are a lot of different ways that communities can have barriers, sometimes very implicit and sometimes kind of not realizing that they're there, just not realizing they have things in place. Some of the basic things that we have as best practices is to have a solar landing page, which your community members can say, oh, I'm thinking of solar on my rooftop. How do I do that in this community? And they can go and get as much information as they need from the community. Likewise, solar installers can do that so that if they want to 
start working within a community, they know precisely what the permit process is, what the inspection process is, what the fees are. Um, It's posted, it's available. It's just those basics of getting that information in. But as communities go for higher designation levels, they could be things like a feasibility study to get solar on a municipal building. That might help communities then reach their own renewable energy goals. Yeah, I really like the structure for SoulSmart because it's just, it's this formulaic process of reviewing your current conditions of planning, your regulatory zoning process, your permitting process, what kind of education and, and outreach are you doing? So how do you help cities go through those structures and identify if they have existing barriers? And then if they do or they don't, you know, what are some different ways in, in addition to what you just mentioned that they can remove barriers, say, from like zoning or, or some of the policies that they might have in place? I'm just going to back up a little bit, Abby, just because I was so excited. We did a study almost two years ago now that looked at how we're doing as a program. But one thing they looked at is which communities used which criteria, which set of best practices to get designated. And one thing that I found was that no communities used precisely the same set of criteria. We had at that time 95 different criteria that communities could select. We've now streamlined that a bit down to 75. But what we find is that communities love to say, these are our goals. And community A's goals are going to be different from what community B's goals are. We do a gap analysis and we say, okay, for your goals, here are the criteria that you should use to reach where you want to go. And with that gap analysis, we might include the things they've already done. Um, Hopefully they've got some work already in progress, but if not, that's okay. Where are they? Where do they want to go? What are the steps they need to take? Most communities get some training for their planning department on what is the proper way to do a permit? What is the proper way to do inspection? Those types of things are really great for some communities that have done absolutely nothing and kind of get them going. So we can start with a community from, you know, we've done nothing and do that gap analysis and get them to a basic level. We can work with somebody from zero to we want to be the best there is in solar in our area and we can get them there. And we can work with somebody who is already at a leading level and help them get to one step further if that's what they're looking for. I like that. And I like that shift and tailoring it to meet communities where they're at rather than trying to overprescribe what they should be doing or could be doing because there's internal barriers that they might run up against or or it doesn't meet their goals. And I worked in this area a little bit for a while. And what I recall is that one of the biggest barriers tends to be around permitting. Have you seen a shift in that? And why is permitting kind of an important piece of all of this at, at the local level? I think there's just the basic notion of soft costs. There's the cost of the solar panels, and then there's the cost of everything else that's not that hardware cost. That might include the design of the solar panels. It might include paperwork. It might include the recruiting of getting new customers. And those are all kind of rolled into this giant soft cost of putting a panel onto somebody's rooftop. The cost that permitting brings in is related mostly to the amount of time that it takes. There's also some fees associated, and those vary wildly from one community to the next. We have some recommendations that keep those costs low for those permits as opposed to 
$300 for a solar permit is just too much for a community to charge. It adds to the cost of the solar fixture. But that time is the big thing. So if it takes two weeks for a permit to get approved, that's two weeks that the solar company is waiting. The customer might walk. It might take time for them to line things up. And the best practices that we put in place for the gold level is a a three-day turnaround. There's another DOE program called Solar App, where it's instantaneous processing for many different types of solar that communities can do. And so for those cities that have a lot of permits coming through and it's taking up a lot of their staff time, they can get this free government automatic processing program and deploy that within their internal government and get that instantaneous processing, saving them money on their staff time, saving the time for the permit to be processed and getting points towards OldSmart. We do have automated permitting as part of our program. There's a lot that can happen with permitting to speed things up, to lower the costs, takes a lot of knowledge. Teresa, can you describe the designation process for cities? How does one get designated different levels? We have, like so many organizations, bronze, silver, gold. Each of them have prerequisites that everybody has to do. And then you add some points to get the the next level up. And so bronze is pretty simple. We have some requirements in the permitting inspection, planning, zoning, and then they can choose from special focus categories, which might be government relations. It might be utility engagement. It could be community engagement. But the prereqs for the bronze is to provide a a solar statement. That's just a, a letter committing themselves to the process. It usually has to be signed by a city official. Complete the solar permitting checklist, which just means you create a checklist, you put it on your solar landing page, make it available for everybody to see, here's exactly what our process is, and then complete a zoning review. So those prerequisites are there. And then again, they choose some some additional ones to get a total of 60 points. To move up to silver, there's a couple more prerequisites. You're going to get some staff training, which is great. I can't say enough how great staff training is. And Let me just say that this program is free for communities to go through, but all its resources are also free for anybody to go on the website. So these trainings, if your community isn't ready to do SoulSmart, but they want to get their planning staff trained, they can just go to our website and get that webinar. Um, It's pretty easy to find. But in any case, for Silver, they have to complete staff training Um, inspection training, and then a zoning clarification. So it's a little bit more than just a zoning review. You go through the zoning clarification and you get some additional points. For gold, it's that permit turnaround time being three days and then making solar a accessory by right in their zoning. All our gold communities have that. We call it PZ5. That's one of the hardest ones for, for communities to get done because zoning changes often take a lot of time. So it's not just a quick and easy thing for them to do. If a city is going through these various steps and needs some help, needs some technical assistance, how is that done? Once they're ready to commit, if you go to our website, soulsmart.org, there's a button that says, I would like some help. (laughs) There's several different places. You can just hit a button and put your information in and we will reach out to you for sure. It's fairly easy to do. Our priority communities are those communities that are working toward designation, but 
you know, if somebody's just like, we just need one little piece for this over here, we can direct to resources on that as well. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say if you like what you're hearing, please support us. You can do so by clicking the support us link on our website at cityclimatecorner.com or you can go to our store and get some cool merch. What are some of the successes of the program? I mean, have you seen some correlation with people getting these designations and the varying levels and leading to more solar installations? We have. It's really exciting. We had a study, the same study from 2020, um, that looked at our communities to say, what's the impact of this? And they did the study. They got rid of all of the things like self-selection bias. Like if you're going for solar, smart, of course, you're going to have more solar deployed, right? So they, they were able to erase all of that in their modeling. They saw that we still show a 17 to 19% increase in solar deployment, both in the number of kilowatts and the number of systems in SolSmart designated communities over those communities that are not designated. We also saw a lot of other very positive things. They did some surveys of the communities and, and the big thing that communities walked away with saying was we learned so much, the knowledge increase for our local government improves our ability to make this solar market development improve so much. That was really nice to see. That was, I think, the top piece that we saw in that survey is just that communities loved it because they felt that much more confident in trying to develop those markets. One thing about solar is you think about it putting on your own home, it's a big upfront investment. And there's some question sometimes of how do you make access to solar equitable? Are there things that you're doing to encourage that? And are there some recommended best practices from SolSmart to ensure that access to solar is equitable? Yeah, that's a great question. With this survey, one thing that we found was that those communities that reported themselves as having less finances within the local government and less staff, so they were under-resourced by both staff and money, we're less likely to participate in the program. We really wanted to redesign how we were providing service to all communities and wanted to make sure that we could then make it possible for all communities to participate. And so we spent a lot of time streamlining our criteria and making them much more clear and much more obvious um, and having a lot more instruction provided so that communities didn't have to work so hard to pass that administrative burden of the program. And then the other thing we did was we created a lot more technical resources that were just templates. So that permitting checklist, when the program first started, the community had to create it and then the program would say, oh, that's good enough, or no, it's not. Now we have templates. If you're a community and you're like, we would love to have a permitting checklist, here's the template, just make it yours. We've done that for a number of things so that it makes it much easier for those under-resourced communities to participate in the program. For me personally, the idea of whole communities being left behind in the clean energy revolution because they can't keep up with the speed with which this technology is changing so that they have things in place, it's incredibly important for those entire communities to be able to participate the other thing that we did was we looked at populations within 
communities and how to help communities ensure that all of their populations. So when I use the word communities, I'm talking about the local governments, you know, the, the town, the city, the county. Populations within that community might struggle to participate in solar, even if the city is making progress in permitting and training their planning and zoning folks. So what we did was we took all of our criteria and we applied an equity lens to it so that basically any community that is going through the SolSmart process can apply that equity lens and make sure that they are including every person within their community and allowing everybody to participate. So if they're looking at zoning, are they really using the, the idea of how do we zone in all of our neighborhoods? There are definitely criteria now that look at LMI. They've always been there. LMI populations. They look at solarized campaigns and you can gear your solarized campaign toward making sure that you have the LMI populations included in the solarized campaigns. Um, We've seen a lot of communities do things like just finding ways to provide funding for the low to moderate income households and make sure that they can participate We just had a story come out for Wise County in Virginia, and Wise County is in the southwest part, the little tail of Virginia. We had done a lot of work in there for large-scale development. It's a very rural area. Virginia is a, a state advisor for the program, so they work to recruit Virginia communities. We had done some work on manufacturing through a different program, Not So Smart, to bring all of those communities in. They have just been granted, I think, $460,000 of federal money to pilot a program for an LMI financing piece to solar in that area. And to me, what's really great about that is that they're finding ways to make sure that everybody can participate without financing being the next piece of that puzzle. It's going to be hard for everybody to participate. We can't meet our climate goals without everybody participating in this revolution. So you mentioned before that SolSmart has has been updating and changing things as it goes along. There's all kinds of barriers right now, I think, to solar and, and opportunities, I think, in terms of high energy prices, inflation, maybe pitted against one another. We've had issues with importing solar uh, and kind of some stalls there. What do you see ahead for SolSmart and how can it help to address some of these issues? There have been tremendous changes within the program, and I do want to point out that DOE has extended this program through 2027, another five years, really excited about that. And there are some areas of focus that we are going to look at, really spending a lot of time on equity and then spending a lot of time on metrics as well, because um, I think that it's important for us to be able to measure what's the impact of this program, but it's also important, I think, for communities to be able to measure the progress toward their goals. I think more and more communities are saying 100% renewable by whenever, and how do we measure that? Or this percentage of renewable energy, and how do we measure that? With respect to solar panel imports from other countries, that that is not something that that we spend time on with local governments, but it, it definitely is something to watch. There's a lot of resources on the soulsmart.org website that can point folks to looking at incentives that are available in their state, et cetera. When do things expire? What does it look like? How do you calculate an ROI on 
a solar system that you're putting on a municipal building. All of that is available on the website. I like to think there's never been a better time to take advantage of solar. One of the other significant changes, growth areas, opportunities we're taking, is looking at rural communities. We have a lot of rural communities that are coming to us and asking for help and how to make sure that they're doing things right for large-scale development in their area. Um, Some communities are saying that they're being approached by developers to build solar and they don't know what their zoning should look like. They don't know what their planning should look like. They don't know what decommissioning is in a contract. What happens to the town when the giant solar farm is no longer viable? Are they responsible for taking it away? So those types of issues are being faced by smaller, more rural communities. And we do have quite a bit on that. We do have a large scale guidance, which criteria should you do if you're interested in large scale and how to make that happen. The Southwest Virginia project was a project that we really spent a lot of time working with them to make sure that they had everything they needed to move forward safely and fairly and progress in getting that energy that they could then sell. There's another federal program called Solar at Scale that is really great for those rural communities. So it's another resource that's available so that they can learn more before they do SoulSmart or as they're doing SoulSmart. I really like how all the federal programs work together to help communities, to help individuals. Um, There's a lot of overlap in that. Really happy to see that progress happening for our smaller communities and rural communities. That's a good point. And we primarily like to focus on the smaller and mid-sized communities. Do you see any major differences or anything that stands out between smaller and larger communities? Is it harder or is it easier? You know, how, how are they able to function within the process? I think for the smaller communities, they tend to just have less resources and the staff in smaller communities tend to wear more hats And so if you have a global pandemic come through, suddenly SoulSmart is important, but not as important as making sure everybody has what they need because kids aren't in school. Those communities where people are being pulled in many directions really struggle with those types of issues. We saw with COVID, a lot of communities kind of stall in their progress and they pick it back up and then it stall again perfectly understandable. One thing that we do have is a regional organization pathway. And we've really been working with regional organizations since we got that put together. We now have, I should know this, I think we have 14 regional organizations that have been designated. And in their designation, what they're doing is working directly with their local communities. So for those smaller cities, if they are part of a an economic development organization or a regional organization or a council of governments, you know, they have a lot of different names, but basically that larger organization can hold all the trainings, for example, for all the towns in that community. So if it's difficult to find the time to get that organized, asking your regional organization to help and get all of the communities in the area designated at the same time helps with that solar development in that area because there's a little more momentum and then just helps those communities with the administrative tasks of setting those types of things up. What counts as a regional organization? Can it be counties? Is it typically metropolitan planning organizations or what counts as that? 
It's not usually counties for you guys in Minnesota. It's the Met Council here. I'm I'm in Fairfax County, Virginia, and and ours is a Northern Virginia Council of Governments. I think it just varies from from area to area what that economic development organization is called. But usually it's several counties, maybe a major metropolitan area and the outlying counties. Teresa, one of the last things we want to ask you is what advice do you have for cities that are maybe thinking about participating? I have so much advice to give, but let me narrow it down. Um, Actually, this is advice that came from a regional organization, Sustainability Coordinator. And she got on a a panel discussion we we had within this regional org that was long ago designated, and then she was just starting. And and she kind of apologized. She said, look, it, I don't have time. I don't have resources. And I'm doing this as much as I can do when I can do it. And I loved that attitude. And I think that for any city or smaller community or even a big community, you don't have to reach for gold level on day one. Start where you can start. Take a look. See what's out there. See what's what speaks to your community's issues and move forward. SoulSmart is great at the bronze level. SoulSmart can also serve as a launch pad and to smart cities, beneficial electrification, EV, you know, all of those ideas are intermingled and um, just get started. There's lots, lots you can do and, and it's not as hard as it, as it feels like it could be. And then there's always help, right? At the click of a button. Always help. No cost to you. Well, thank you so much. Um, we've really enjoyed this. Boy, if you're listening and you're not yet involved in SoulSmart, got to do it. Yep. SoulSmart.org. Can I say that? You <laughs> as can. As many times as possible. <laughs> All right, Abby, what did you think? What were your takeaways? Well, I just think this is a really great program for any community that wants to enable solar. Um, We talked a bit about the soft costs and how much solar has dropped and costs in the last 10, 12 years. It's been incredibly significant, but one thing that kind of remains is those soft costs. So that's the permitting costs, maybe interconnection fees, different regulatory hoops you might have to to jump through. And that's where the cities can really come in and look at, well, how are we unintentionally often putting up barriers to solar adoption in our community? And how can we make that smoother to help bring down some of these these remaining costs that are not totally necessary? It's just a really smart program. And I, I like how it's evolving from one that was a bit more prescriptive to one that serves a bit more as a framework that cities can tailor their own goals to. Yeah, it makes sense that this would make things easier. But the study that they did where they tried to remove all the extraneous stuff that showed a 17 to 19% increase in solar for communities that have solar smart. Mm-hmm. Hey, it works. They try to cover all of the different bases where you might be considering solar. And so if you're a homeowner and you want to put solar on your rooftop and you know that you're going to have to go through the permitting process, maybe you'll look at the city's website and if there's a landing page there that's like, hey, here's some step-by-step instructions for what to do if you're going to get solar on your roof, that's super helpful. Or, hey, did you know there 
these tax credits, these utility rebates are are available. So I think that those kinds of things and then the kind of behind the scenes is what does our zoning look like? Do we restrict this accessory use or do we enable it? And just thinking through those different things, making the permitting process smoother seems to have a pretty big impact. Seeing that that differential from soul smart designated communities to the general population is is a pretty good achievement. One other thing that was interesting to me was as I think about the program coming from a first ring suburb, I think about permitting process to put it on homes and small businesses. But it was interesting to hear her talk about in rural communities, a lot of the things they're working with folks on is not just that, but is on large scale development where you have developers wanting to come in and putting in a large community solar garden or something. Yeah, I think that's something that has maybe been overlooked by developers and regulators is the impact of larger scale solar in rural communities. It can go both ways. You know, you can have communities that are very excited about it and want the tax benefits that might come with that um, and other economic benefits that might come with that. But it's also been done in ways that are not consistent with the community and they come in and do this big gravel foundation and, and chain link fence around it and it becomes a bit of an eyesore versus if you're in a rural community, you can have some say in what it looks like. Do you want it to be a pollinator habitat? Do you want it to have water quality benefits, you know, and, and thinking through some of the landscaping that can be beneficial to the community and more aesthetically pleasing. It's really important to not just look at rooftop and smaller scale solar, but also what are the community desires for larger scale solar and then inviting that in because it is it is a real economic opportunity for rural communities. It was also interesting to hear her talk about their work with regional organizations. That's a theme we've heard a number of times too, is that it can often be really helpful to work with a bunch of cities in a region. Yeah. And I actually think that we might be one of the first with the Metropolitan Council here. So back when SolSmart was through the Solar Foundation, which has since been merged into IRAC, I think one of our future guests, Brian Ross, pitched the idea that, hey, we have the Met Council and they work with 140 plus communities in the Metropolitan region. What if you put a solar advisor there? And so they did. And Met Council has been able to help a ton of communities not just work their way through the SolSmart program, but also ensure that solar is included in all of the comprehensive plans, um, creating really great maps and tools and calculators uh, for communities to use. They also have been able to create kind of affordable housing solar programs within the Met Council region. And so they've demonstrated that this regional approach can be really impactful too. So it's awesome to see that they've they've expanded to other regional governments. And they can correct me if I'm wrong on the first regional, but I think that is correct. Great stuff. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft, edited by me. Our production assistant is Maggie Morin. Music by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.